Howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll here. The latest book for my wife, Grace and I, Win Your War, is available for pre-sale. It releases at the end of September. We're gonna look at how God creates Satan counterfeits and how there is a spiritual attack for your relationship with God, yourself, others, and the church. Super biblical, super practical. Pre-order today, Win Your War. Don't you hate it when you go to church and the pastor's just talking about money? Don't you hate that? I don't. So that's what we're gonna talk about today. That's what we're gonna talk about today. We're gonna talk about money. Now don't grab your wallet and make a, a run for the car. Just hang in there and give me a shot at this. And the reason that we talk about money is because we love people. And the decisions you make, some of the pain you endure, some of the stress that you're family is under, some of the, uh, the real obligations and complications of your vocation are all tied to how you manage, steward, oversee the wealth that God has entrusted to you. And uh, we all come from some sort of family history when it comes to how money was generated and distributed. Uh, here's a little bit about my story. For those of you that know my story, we, we're from County Cork, Southern Ireland. And uh, the famine hit, the potato famine, and many of my relatives either died of starvation or typhoid. I mean, it was catastrophic. So people are starving to death and then you'd go into some public facility and there you would catch typhoid. So either way you die. Many of my relatives died of starvation and typhoid. Uh, this includes many of the wives. And so now you have men who have no wife, they have no income, they have nothing holding them in Ireland. So they boarded a coffin ship. And that means it wasn't built for transporting humans, but only for freight. And so many people died on the voyage. A few of my male relatives jumped on a boat. They landed in New York, went through the sort of immigrant processing process at the time and realized number one, they weren't really welcome in New York, right? If, if, if you've heard of the language, the paddy wagon, that's where they threw us Irishmen. Uh, weren't really welcome. And in addition, there wasn't a lot of employment opportunity for, for guys that really didn't have a skill set beyond farming potatoes. And I don't know if you've been to Manhattan, there's not a ton of potato farming. So what happened was my relatives made their way somehow uh, to a place called the Red River Valley. It's right between Minnesota and North Dakota, fertile farmland. And though they had nothing but the clothes on their back, literally that's all they had, what ultimately they did is they had a family farm. They built a family homestead. There were auxiliary family businesses. It seems like maybe construction, uh, road crews. And so now the family that literally was starving to death is flourishing with a small family business. That homestead is where I was brought as a little boy and that's where I grew up for the first few years of my life was in that town. The reason we left is because by the time I was born, there was nothing left. Most of the farm had been sold, the businesses had all died and the money had been spent. Almost everyone I ever talked to says, I need more money. You may or may not need more money, but you do need more wisdom. And even if you get a lot of money, it's not going to help you unless it is accompanied with wisdom. Uh, there was a, a study done of those who have won the lottery, right? And some of you are like, that's my thing. I pray to Jesus and buy lotto tickets. That's my hope. What that is, that's a Hail Mary pass. But even if it gets caught, 
what they show is within three to five years, if you win the lotto, your odds of filing for bankruptcy are significantly higher than the average American and your state before earning the income. Because you can get a lot of money, but if you don't have a lot of wisdom, it's not going to last for very long. And so the reason that we're talking about money is because we love God and we love people. And ultimately, we want you to understand your wealth, your portfolio, your possessions from God's perspective. So we're in the book of Proverbs. And if you've been reading along, you can read a chapter a day. It's 31 chapters. You could read the book in about a month. If you just put a dollar sign as you're reading in your Bible by all the occasions of stewardship and finances, it's a mega theme. And so I just wanna pull out some of those for you today. And I wanna start with uh, the three shovels that dig your hole. And when you talk to somebody who's financially in debt, usually they're like, man, I'm in the hole. Well, here's what happens. At various points in your life, someone is gonna try to hand you a shovel to dig your grave. It's not just a hole, it's your grave. And my encouragement to you is don't use this shovel. And if you have, find a way to give it back. Here's the big idea, Proverbs 22, seven, the rich rules over the poor. Is that true? Yes. See, the golden rule is he who has the gold makes the rules, all right? So the person that is in control is the person who controls the assets. And the borrower is what? Slave of the lender. Now we are a nation that prides ourselves on freedom, but we have financial slavery. I would just beg you not to run your finances like our government does, okay? There's no wisdom in that. There's no wisdom in that. That we live in a nation where people are enslaved, not physically, but financially. And God wants you to be free totally and completely. And what this means is if you're a slave, whoever your master is, they make all your life decisions. You don't get to make any decisions. This is what financial debt does. It enslaves you. It's like, I can't be you know, with my family because my job requires that I travel all the time. I can't you know, take uh, another opportunity because the risk is too great because we've overextended ourselves financially. I would like to take a day off, but to make ends meet, I need to work seven days a week. And I know it's not a sustainable lifestyle. It's not a healthy lifestyle, but it's survival for me in this season. All of a sudden, your values, your biblical convictions, your highest priorities, and we'll deal with this more next week on how to make a life plan, which is the culminating sermon of this whole series. But these are the three shovels that will be handed to you to dig your hole, or as I would say it, to dig your grave. Number one is car debt, car debt. Now, what's gonna happen? You're all gonna go out to the parking lot and be like, okay, who owes what on this car? Uh, but the average American that buys a new car borrows $31,000. The average American who buys a used car borrows $21,000. This is usually at a very high interest rate. Now you're looking at four to $500 a month just to have your vehicle, not to fill it with fuel, not to maintain it, not to insure it. It is a massive, massive crisis and problem. College debt is next. If you graduate from a public university with a bachelor's degree, your average debt is $26,000. If you graduate with a bachelor's degree, 
from a private university, your average debt is about $32,000. If you add a master's degree, that will be even higher. College debt cripples young people. Let me just put my dad hat on. This is what I tell my kids all the time. This is like a, this is like a, a greatest hit song at the Driscoll house. Don't go into debt for a car, don't go into debt for college, and credit card is the Greek word for demon. That's what I tell my kids. That's what I tell my kids. Because ultimately, let's say you've got 20 or $30,000 in car debt and 26 to $32,000 in college debt, and then you add to that credit card debt. Now credit card debt, um, the average credit card in America is at a 16% interest rate. If you go to a drug cartel, you will get a better percentage on your investment. I mean, hard money from the mafia is not at a 16% margin. It's, it's unbelievable. But the average American and the average person in Arizona is right around the national average. It's about six and a, six and a half thousand dollars in credit card debt. Now, just think of this for a moment. Let's say that you are a young couple. So those of you who are younger, just hear me in this. Let's say you owe 25 grand. Let's meet in the middle on your car debt. 30 grand is a rough number for your college debt. Um, and then you add your credit card debt and then you marry someone who did the same. You start in debt over $100,000. How long will it take you to, to get out of that hole? Now, some of you think you're like, I'm gonna get a degree and then I'm gonna get a good paying job. That's what they tell you, they're liars. That's not how it works. In addition, once you start working now, you've gotta pay for a wardrobe and eating out. You've got increased living expenses. And it's not that everything you make is going to be margin. I tell this to my kids all the time. If you can avoid car debt, college debt, and credit card debt, and if you can find someone who loves Jesus and has done the same, you will start 10 years ahead of everyone else. 10 years ahead of everyone else. Because for the average young couple that's marrying around 30, this will take 10 years to get up to zero. Just think of that, 10 years to get up to broke, so that then you could start to save money to maybe one day buy a home, but the average man doesn't marry until they're about 30, and the average woman is just a bit younger than that. That means that you're pushing 40 and you're still deciding, can we afford to have kids? Are we ever gonna buy a home? Are we ever gonna get up to zero? It's very discouraging, and it explains the epidemic of socialism. This isn't in my notes, but it's true, so I'll say it. Socialism is not giving wisdom. It's just giving resources to those who sometimes have made unwise decisions. And ultimately, this governmental thought that we just continue to print money, extend credit, and vote for people who will pay for our mistakes, eventually, financially, that is ruined. That will not survive. Because the world in its wisdom does not know God. 
And so I would just encourage you as God's people, let's say you're a younger person, let's say rather than marrying at 30, rather than spending your 20s dating, relating and fornicating, you could instead maybe love Jesus, get married in your 20s. Well, now you're five or 10 years ahead. And if the two of you can avoid debt going into marriage, now you're 15 or 20 years ahead. See, because fools think about a good time and wise people think about a good legacy. And some of you years are like, I wish my parents could have given me more money. I tell you, if you gotta pick between money and wisdom, which would I encourage you to pick? Wisdom. Wisdom will help you make money and keep money. Money does not necessarily buy you wisdom. So these are the three shovels that dig your hole and cause you to be a slave. Now, when we're talking about finances, each of you is going to view finances, wealth, possessions differently. I'll give you uh, the personality types, the seven money personalities. I'm not gonna give you all the verses on these, but if you take each of these categories and read Proverbs, I promise you, they're all in there. The first is the hoarder. Money gives me security. The more money I have, the safer I feel. There's always these stories that come out in the news. You're like, somebody lived you know, in a trailer park and drove a beat up car and they died and had $10 million in the bank. That's the hoarder. Money gives me security. The spender, uh, money is my reward. I have a hard life, so I go shopping. It's been a long week, I'm going to the spa. You know, my in-laws acted like outlaws. I'm gonna go out for dinner, right? You're just like, I just sort of reward myself. I'm the spender. The avoider is the one who, they don't like money. They don't like talking about money. Bills stress them out. Money stresses them out. These are people who are like, how's your finances? They're like, I don't know. It just stresses me out, so I don't look at it. That's not a good idea. We believe in Jesus and math, and you should too, okay? The avoider just doesn't even wanna deal with it. Uh, the hater is the person who they've seen money used and abused. And so they have decided that money is evil and to be avoided. It's just a dangerous thing. And they'll misquote a popular scripture. They will say that money is the root of all kinds of evil. The Bible says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not as much what's in your hands, but what's in your heart that really is the issue. And you, 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 can either, you can either love God and use money or you can love money as your God. Um, the manipulator is the person who they like to give gifts and grant loans so that you're obligated to them. And some of you know this, you're like, I really need money, but if I call them, ugh, they're gonna, they're gonna then peer into my life and control me and tell me what to do and ask for favors and burden me. This is not a grace-based giving. This is contractual, not covenantal. These are people who have learned if I give gifts and lend money, it allows me to manipulate and control people. The show-off, we'll call this the Scottsdaleite, is the person who, is the person who uses money to give an impression to everyone else of their success. If you've been to Newport Beach or when people leave Newport, they move to Scottsdale, they bring the lifestyle with them and you look, you're like, they must be rich. No, 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 they're in debt. They're in significant debt. They just were determined to have a really great car that they could park in front of a really great restaurant and get out of in really great shoes to hand the keys 
to the valet so that everyone would think that they had arrived. Oh, so that's convicting. Welcome to Scottsdale, okay. That's why the square footage in Scottsdale is 20% more, 30% more than the rest of the valley. Where do you live? Scottsdale. Snotsdale is what they call it. Now I love Scottsdale and I know where I'm at, right? But let's just be honest, if the point of earning money is to impress people, there's a heart problem. I don't care if you have nice shoes, I don't care if you drive a nice car, but you've gotta ask yourself, am I trying to give a presentation of myself that is not the real me? If so, I am asking people to have relationship with a phony person who's not even being genuine and authentic about their lifestyle. The last one is the giver. And the giver is the one who says, money is how I love God and I love people. So money is not the ends, it's the means to the ends. I love God, so I give to God. I love my spouse, so I give to my spouse. I love my kids, so I give to my kids. I love my friends, so I give to my friends. And the Bible says to love your enemy, so I'll try that too. This is the giver. Now, how many of you grew up in a home where your mom and dad had different money personalities? Any of you grew up in that? Okay. It's a lot of tension. Every marriage survey that's been done for decades lists financial conflict at or near the top of the issues that marriage deals with and married couples um, sort of battle through. That being said, this would be great for your life group discussion. Which one are you? Which one are you? Okay. And if at life group, there's cookies left over and you take them all, you're the hoarder. Uh, so leave them on the table, be the giver, all right? So which one are you and which one is your spouse? And, it, and until you make your budget, you've got to agree on your priorities, okay? Because sometimes couples don't even look at their finances because they begin with such different convictions. So I want you to think biblically about your wealth. Next slide, please. And there are three perspectives on possessions. Number one, what's mine is mine. This is how selfish people think. Uh, Proverbs 119, such is the fate who all, all who are what? Greedy for money, it robs them of life. These are greedy people. And for them, what's mine is mine. And the more I can get, the happier I am. These are selfish people. These are people who could give to the Lord, but they don't. They could help their kids, but they don't. They could help their parents, but they don't. They're selfish. What's mine is mine. Number two, what's yours is mine. This is the results in stealing, right? Proverbs uh, 30, 15, um, the leech has two daughters, give and give, never satisfied. They never say enough. Do you know what a leech does? It just keeps sucking the blood, the life out of the host. There are some people, they think what's yours is mine. Therefore, you are obligated to me, you owe me, you need to pay me. And all they do is literally suck resources from other people. And sometimes, I love these people, but sometimes what they'll do, they'll just have deferred maintenance on their whole life 
until there's a cataclysmic crisis and then they'll just stand there bewildered and wait for everyone else to come in and to pay the bills and to fix the problem. But unless they learn wisdom, it will repeat itself. Number three, what's mine is his. This is the position and posture of what the Bible will call a steward. A steward recognizes that God is the owner, I am the manager, right? That I oversee God's portfolio and I wanna have a good return on investment. Proverbs 21, 26, some people are always greedy for more, but the godly love to give. They love to give, we'll get into that. There's a generosity that flows from them. And let me say this, if you believe that everything you have is yours, you'll be asking this question, God, why do I need to give what's mine? If you believe that everything that you have, the car that you drive, the shoes that you wear, the credit card in your wallet, whatever is in your checking account, whatever is in your retirement account, whatever is in your kid's college fund, if you assume that that all belongs to God, it'll be a lot easier to give. And here's, here's what I learned um, as a brand new Christian. Uh, we had this conversation, a pastor and I, and I was like, well, I'm a Christian, I need to start giving. He said, well, here's how it works. He said, God has a 90-10 split. So I was like, okay, well, which way is this split? All right, because if he gets 90 and I get 10, I mean, I, I still love Jesus, but not as much as I did a few minutes ago, right? So I shouldn't have said that, but... Um, but a 90-10 split where I get to keep 90% of his money seems like a real good deal to me. If I came to you right now and I said, I have $1,000, how about I give you 1,000, you give me 100, you're like, I'll do that all day, every day. God owns everything we are to steward um, as the manager, that over which he is the owner, okay? That means when we go to make financial decisions, we're actually asking him, what do you want me to do with your money? not telling him, here's what I'm gonna do and I need you to bless it. Now, this being said as well, there are four perspectives on finances. I'll hit these quickly. The reason I hit this is that we're in an election cycle. Isn't that fun? Uh, nonetheless, what happens every election cycle, it turns into class warfare. One group comes along and says, we need to unburden those who are wealthy and affluent so that they can flourish and pull everyone else up with them because when the tide rises, all the boats rise. And the others say, no, 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 they're all greedy rich people, we need to tax them. And if you're poor, vote for me and I'll give their money to you. It's a legal way of pickpocketing, okay? And what happens then is people think in these terms, rich and poor. The Bible thinks in these terms, godly and ungodly. I'll give you an example, okay? Uh, the ungodly poor. So there's actually four groups of people when it comes to their finances. Two are rich, two are poor. And by godly and ungodly, I'm asking, how do you get your money? How do you spend your money? If you get it in a godly way and spend it in a godly way, you're a godly person. If you get it in an ungodly way or spend it in an ungodly way, you're an ungodly person. Ungodly poor, Proverbs 10, four, lazy hands make a man poor. Laziness is ungodliness. The result is poverty. He's not a victim. Some of you are like, I don't have any money. Do you go to work? No, well, just pray about it. There may be a connection. 
Okay, how about this one? Kind of in a mood today, this is fun, all right. There are those who are the godly poor, Proverbs 28, six. Better a poor man whose walk is, what he's saying is he's godly and he's broke than a rich man whose ways are perverse. That's an ungodly rich man versus a godly poor person. How about the next one? Ungodly rich, Proverbs 15, 27. Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household. They don't love people, they love money. They don't use money to love people, they use people to make money. They're, they're greed motivated, not God motivated. And the Bible speaks against the ungodly rich. And then there are also those who are godly and rich. Proverbs 10, 22, the blessings of the Lord bring what? Some people are like, I don't know, I love Jesus. I worked hard. I tried to obey the Bible. I tried to be a good steward and God just really blessed us. He was very generous to us. You know, and I, thank you, Lord. The blessing of the Lord brings wealth and he adds no trouble to it. Again, I told you, survey was done, the average person that wins the lottery, within a few years, their level of happiness, contentment, joy, and their physical health has deteriorated because they're not having their wealth in relationship with their God and God is the source of life, not wealth. So these are the four categories. Now, let me ask you this, which one was Jesus? Yes. He was godly and rich in heaven, streets lined with gold, angelic staff, sits on a throne, all indicators are doing well, okay? And then comes down to earth, born in a manger to poor rural parents, lives in a small town, has very little money. And the little bit that he had, Judas is stealing because he's ungodly. Now, if you saw Jesus today or when you and I depart or he returns, how will we see him in poverty or riches? Riches that he will lavishly, generously share with us all of his provision. That's the, the view of God's kingdom. So you can be like Jesus and be rich or you can be like Jesus and be poor. The question is not, are you rich or poor? The question is, are you becoming like Jesus? And if you love the Lord and God gives you a lot, be a good steward of it. If you love the Lord and God gives you a little, be a steward of it. And so I don't care whether you're rich or poor. You know, I want your needs met because I love you. But at the end of the day, I just want you to be godly. And if you focus on your wealth instead of your God, eventually you will become ungodly in the obtaining of wealth. So here's what I'm gonna encourage you to do to think about what it looks like to have a financial plan. Some of you are financial planners. So I'm already talking your love language. You've accepted Dave Ramsey in your heart. You're already way ahead of me, okay? <laughs> For some of you, this will be new information. So let's talk about financial planning. Here's a little bit that Proverbs has to say about planning in general. Uh, Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. What he's saying is get rich quick schemes. The Bible talks about chasing fantasies. Uh, there is no shortcut. There is no shortcut. And so you need plans. And then you need to be diligent to work your plan because delayed gratification is what destroys your plan. We had a plan 
And then we wanted something and we spent the money that we had or we took out a credit card and spent the money we didn't have to get the thing that we should have diligently saved for by delaying gratification. How about this one? Proverbs 15, 22, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. What the Bible says is, is you're putting your plan together, find people with wisdom. And I would submit to you, particularly in this occasion, those who have financial wisdom and let them be advisors. We actually use this language, financial advisors. That's exactly what they are. They're like, okay, what do I do? Here's my plan. Could you take a look at it? Is this a good idea? Being humble enough to invite people in. And some of you are like, I don't want people peering into my business. Choose wise people that you can trust. Proverbs 16.3, commit to the Lord whatever you do and your plans will succeed. That when you and I make a plan, we have to bring it to the Lord. God, is this in agreement with your word and your values and your principles? And Lord, I've sought wise counsel and I have a plan and I wanna work it diligently. And I'm inviting, I'm asking you to bless this because I'm gonna do the best that I can. I'll do my best, you make it blessed. That's sort of the heart. So you're gonna need a plan, some sort of plan. Now, let me give you some categories for that plan. I'll give you four different groupings for spending. Number one, God and government. That's the way it's supposed to be. Our world has inverted that. How many of you have noticed that? You get your paycheck and God is not in the waterfall, but the government is and they're way upstream. You're like, they, took, they didn't even ask. They didn't pray about it. They didn't, you know, how are you doing? Is this gonna hurt you this month or can we keep it? All right, let me just say, the government doesn't do grace. Right? The IRS is not a grace-based organization. <clears throat> So, but you're supposed to give to the Lord first. Proverbs 3, 9, honor the Lord with your wealth with the first fruits of all your crops. That's your first and best. If God is first in your life, then God should be first in your finances. And if God is not first in your finances, he's not first in your life. Ultimately, when we are managing God's money, we need to seek the Lord, give to the Lord, invoke of the Lord, consider the Lord. Now I'll share something with you that you may or may not be aware of. Wallet Hubs and Forbes, both in recent years, named the state of Arizona as the least charitable state in the United States of America. And I don't know if you've noticed this, we have a lot of Mormons. Do Mormons tend to give? Yes, it's a works-based religion. And as a result, if you're a devout Mormon, you have to give. It's not like pray about it and see if the Lord leads you. It's like we prayed about it and we're here to lead you, all right? So in a state that has a high concentration of Mormons, we still have the lowest charitable giving. Part of it is because I think, and this is the constant battle against the gravitational cultural forces of Arizona, this is a culture of retirement and vacation. There's no sense of urgency for anyone about anything. People would protest, but they gotta to get to their golf game and they don't have time for their issue. And as a result, you and I can have this cultural attitude that, that there is no sense of urgency. You're in the fastest growing city in the United States of America, Phoenix, the greater Phoenix Metroplex. You're in the fastest growing county in America or one of them. 
People are coming here. People don't know Jesus. People need Jesus. And if we don't have a sense of urgency to tell them about Jesus, then we have adopted the same mentality that I'm either on vacation or retired from Christianity. In addition, there are taxes. Um, and, and on the tithe too, let me say this real quickly. The Old Testament speaks of a tithe as 10%, and that would go to local ministry. In addition, there were other offerings, years of celebration, rest for the land, all of which combined meant that 25 to 27% of your income went to God in total. Jesus comes along, he only on one occasion talks about tithing and he tells these guys who are tithing, that's fine, but you also need to love people and seek justice. He doesn't rebuke them for tithing. He, he acknowledges that they're good with their money, but they're bad with people. What he says is don't just you know, give your money, give your heart to love people and seek justice for them. In addition to the tithe, there are taxes. Romans 13, seven, I've quoted this verse to a few people who then went to jail. Um, I'll tell you that story in a moment. It's funny for me, not for them, okay? Proverbs, Romans 13, seven, give everyone you owe them. If you owe taxes, what? Pay taxes. Some of you are like, you know, this is how we know that man didn't write the Bible. Amen, God did. There was no committee that's like, let's put taxes in, right? But ultimately, there is a government, we need to honor it and pay our taxes. I've talked to a few Christians over the years like, I read the constitution, I read the declaration of independence, we're not required to pay taxes. I don't think the IRS was the founding father's vision. I'm not gonna pay. Well, you're gonna go to jail. That's what you're gonna do. And, they, and a couple of guys I know did. So if you're watching this, you know, praying for you. But you know, ultimately, but here's the deal. Do you have a choice to give to the government? You, you, I guess you kind of do, but when you go to buy gas tax or property tax, they, they really don't give you a choice. God gives you a choice because he wants it to be a relationship based on love, not just law. So your first category of expenses are God and government. Number two is your expenses. This is your spending. Proverbs 22, 26, 27, do not be one who shakes his hands in a pledge or puts up security for debts. You're agreeing to a financial obligation that is overextending you or you're putting yourself in harm's way to co-sign for someone who is irresponsible. If you lack the means to pay, what he's saying is if you don't have the money, don't make the obligation. This is where we overextend ourselves. We're like, I want this or I want to commit to that, but I don't have it, so I will, and I will hope that it works out, which it rarely does. Instead, he says, um, your very bed will be snatched from under you. This is where your car gets repossessed. This is where you get an eviction notice from your residence. You have some life needs. You need a place to sleep. You need food to eat. Uh, you probably need transportation to move. And ultimately, if you overextend yourself in your debt load, it will start to impact your ability to meet basic needs, to meet basic needs. So what are these? Number one, your largest category of spending in a household budget, what would you think it is? 
housing. It's usually your biggest expense. Most experts will say it should be 25% of your income. And that can include your rent or your mortgage, your utilities, your furnishings, and your maintenance. Number two, your car is your second highest expense for most people. Now, half of cars on the road are 10 years or older. Uh, cars today, because of the condition of the motor, if you maintain them, especially with synthetic oil, which is what I tell my kids, you can drive a car for 200,000 miles plus. What happens if you buy a new car and drive it off the lot? What happens to the value? It depreciates instantaneously, some would say between 15 and 25%, which means if you're a foolish young person or parent, uh, you, you, you get in the car, you say, okay, I'll buy it. You drive off the lot and you're like, I regret it. I put it in reverse. You just lost 15 to 25%. That's not an investment. I hear people all the time, they're like, oh, I have investments like a car. Is your car worth what you owe? No, that's not an investment. That's a liability. That's not an asset. You're upside down. My recommendation, pay cash for a car. Some of you say, I don't have the money. Then get the money to pay cash for a car. And ideally, buy one from a relative or friend, it reduces the risk that it's a total lemon and maintain your vehicle. Number three is food. But let's just be honest, in our culture where people don't understand nutrition, they can't cook and they eat out all the time, this increases greatly the percentage, especially with things like, you know, a $6 cup of coffee. Like what? Is the Holy Spirit in there? How could it possibly be $6? I, I, I should receive the Holy Spirit for $6. Number four, debt elimination. The most likely person to have credit card debt is, drum roll please, a single woman in her 20s who's buying shoes and makeup and getting her nails done, hoping to find a guy with a job that isn't paying attention to the math. That's, that's how it goes. Oh, that's offensive. Oh, I know, I know, you're welcome. It's, it's my second spiritual gift, I know. So, and then category number five is insurance. This is like a safety net. Right, life is like a balancing act on a tightrope, and at some point you're gonna you're gonna lose your your footing. This is medical insurance. This is dental insurance. If you're renting, this is renter's insurance for your possessions. If you're a homeowner, it is getting insurance on your possessions and property. This can include disability. So if you're the primary or sole income earner for your family, if you were to be out of commission, they would be devastated. Then you need disability insurance. This includes auto insurance and also life insurance. Life insurance, because my view is as head of household and husband and father, Grace and the kids are my responsibility whether I'm dead or alive. Because their needs are unchanged even if my status is changed. So life insurance, so the family's okay. Uh, there's life insurance for the church, right? We try to button everything up in our family and for our church family. Those are your expenses. Number three is savings. 
you can only accrue savings a little bit at a time. How many of you are just like, oh, I'm just gonna, you know, in six months, I'm gonna really start socking money away. You won't. Your car will blow up. Your child's teeth will all fall out. It's just, I'm just telling you what's coming. It's apocalyptic, okay? It's coming. Proverbs 30, 25, answer creatures of little strength, yet they store up their food in the summertime. You ever see ants? Just a little bit at a time, but there's that diligence. If you're a young person, Google something called compounded interest. Just look at what happens if you start at a young age putting a little bit away and don't access it, but let it grow, it will multiply like the fishes and loaves in the hands of the little boy. Proverbs 13, 11, dishonest money dwindles away, but he who gathers money, how? Little by little, little by little. Now, let me say this. For those of you who are single or young married, you're wrongly assuming that you will start your lifestyle at the same place that your parents have arrived at after decades of work. This is what happens with, this is why young people too, they won't move out. They're like, I can't afford this, this is awesome. And so, (laughs) because you want to maintain the lifestyle that took your parents a whole lifetime to rise to. So when it comes to savings, um, it's good to have roughly six months of cash in an accessible account. Why? Because if you get sick, if you lose your job, or if an opportunity comes, a great opportunity for, you know, somebody's got a depressed valuation on a house and you're like, I could buy that and flip that. Um, They need cash right away. You put yourself in a position to mitigate against crisis and also make opportunity. Ideally, this would be your savings account, six months would be in a separate account that is not your general account so that you don't access it, but you have access to it. Now, let me say this, 40%, hear me in this, 40% of American adults do not have the cash on hand for a $400 emergency. 40% of Americans do not have the cash on hand for a $400 emergency. What that means is if your check engine light comes on, it's a nuclear crisis. If your kids need braces, you're homeless. And so it is little by little. And what people tend to think is, this is just a season. No, it's a lifestyle. And the lifestyle needs to change because the season never will. And the number four is investments. So you give to God, government, you pay for the need, not the greed that you have in your life. You save some for times of trouble or opportunity, and then you invest, which is more long-term thinking. And I would encourage you to put these as your priorities. Some of you say, I don't have money for investments. Then that becomes a goal to work toward. Proverbs 13, 22, a good man leaves an inheritance for who? His children's children not just his children. The key to wealth is how to extend it generationally. This takes a lot of wisdom. You gotta figure out how to architect your portfolio to do that. This is where if you are a parent and you give money to your kid, but not wisdom, what happens? They spend all the money. You can give a company to your kids 
and eventually it will go bankrupt if they don't have wisdom. It's not about the money, it's about the wisdom. And a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. I'll just say this, I've offended young people. I I believe in offending everyone, so let me offend old people now. (laughs) My least favorite bumper sticker in Arizona is we're spending our children's inheritance. You know, it's, I just wanna T-bone them and quote Proverbs 13, 22. <laughs> that's godless, that's ungodly, right? You should be thinking, how can I help my kids? How can I help my grandkids? Because at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's like a track meet and you're handing off the baton and you don't want it to be dropped and you want them to start in a, a more advantageous position than you did. Proverbs 27, 23 and 24, be sure you know the condition of your flocks. This is your portfolio. Give careful attention to your herds for riches do not, what? Endure forever. And a crown is not secure for all generations. It only takes, it takes multiple generations to build an empire. It takes one generation to absolutely destroy it and consume all the resources. These are your investments. I would include in these for you, if you have kids, a college fund, a college fund. And I hear some parents say, well, I don't know if my kid's gonna go to college. Well, then you can transfer it to your grandkids someday. But, you know, and then you can encourage relatives, family. They're like, it's Christmas, what should we do? Put a gift in the college fund. Now the kid will not you know, appreciate it at two, but they will at 22, okay? How about this one in addition, Uh, stocks, bonds, real estate, retirement accounts, all of these things are planning for your future. And again, we don't learn these things in school. We don't learn these things from the example set by our government. And that's why our schools are failing and our government is dying is because there is a lack of wisdom. So let, let God be true and every man a liar. And some of you are like, this sounds unusual. Let me just tell you this, their thing ain't working, so do something different. I want it better for you. I want it better for your kids. I want it better for your grandkids. I want it to not just be income, but godly lifestyle that includes contentment. A couple of things um, in closing. Four reasons for Christians to give generously. Say, why? Why should I worship God with my wealth rather than worshiping my wealth as my God? Well, let's, let's look at this. Number one, God takes our worst and gives his best. Here we're gonna talk about Jesus Christ. John three sixteen. it's the great end zone verse. God so loved the world that he what? Loving is giving and giving is loving. If you're not giving, you're not loving. Say, I love God. If you don't give, you don't love God. Say, I love my spouse. If you don't give to your spouse, you don't love your spouse. I love my kids. If you don't give to your kids, you don't love your kids. Giving is loving and loving is giving because love is not just what you feel, it's what you do. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Jesus is called the first fruits, the first and best. What a gift, amen? The greatest gift given in the history of the world is the son of God, Jesus Christ. That's amazing. 
Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Not only is this something that's good for your life, it's good for your eternal life. This gift that God gives of salvation, grace, forgiveness of sin, new beginning through Jesus Christ, it is an eternal return on investment. So some of you are here and you're like, okay, I'm not a Christian. How much does God want me to give? Here's what I like to say. 100% of all your sin. Before God wants your money, he wants your sin. Before he wants your best, he wants your worst. He only wants a little bit of your best. He wants all of your worst. Jesus Christ lived without sin. Jesus Christ died in your place for your sin to pay your spiritual debt to God. And if you receive Jesus, he takes all of your sin, he trades it for all of his righteousness, and it's credited to your account for all eternity. That's amazing. Right? Number two, your wallet is God's scalpel for heart surgery. Matthew 6, 21, this guy named Jesus says, for your treasure is there your heart will be also. What he's saying here is that your heart internally follows your financial decisions externally. If you don't have a heart for your spouse, start spending some money on a date night. You can either spend it on date night or divorce attorneys. You're gonna spend it. So spend it on a date night. You're like, I don't like them. Then plan a really good date night. See if you can fix that. If you, if you want your heart to be toward your spouse, be generous toward your spouse. If you, if you want your heart to be for your kids, be generous toward your kids. If you want your heart to be generous toward our church and the Lord, then give in that direction and your heart will follow the decisions of your wallet. And let me just tell you this, people care more about things they're paying for. How do I know this? Thank you for asking, I appreciate that. Because I'm a pastor and for, I've been a senior pastor for more than 20 years and there are people I'll meet with, like let's say a couple that's arguing or disagreeing or having conflict and I'll meet with them and then they'll come back the next week. Okay, what happened? Nothing. What did you do? Nothing. I did nothing. Okay, I prayed about it. You need to pay for a professional counselor. Why do I need to pay? because you will do something. You will not show up every week and be like, I did nothing, here's your $150. You're not gonna do that. At some point you're gonna be like, I'm gonna fix this and keep this money. That's motivation and incentive and your heart follows your financial decisions. If it's costing you something, you're gonna care about it. Number three, you cannot take it with you. You can't, right? If the rapture comes, you will not grab your Ferrari you know, it's not going with you. You cannot take it with you, but you can send it ahead. Again, I hope you've got or aspire to have some accounts that you're not making withdrawals from, that you're just making deposits in. Heaven is an investment account. It is an investment account. There is money that you can set aside that your kids can't access till they're in college. There is money that you can set aside that you shouldn't access until you retire. There's another account kept in the heavenly realm in the presence of God, and you and I are making deposits there and there will be a return on investment. 
Jesus says, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where what? Moth and rust destroy. Have you noticed that? You spend money on something and immediately it starts the deterioration cycle. Like, this is a brand new house and the roof is leaking. Yeah, because it's on the earth. That's how this works. Everything is in a decline cycle. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. God wants you to invest your whole life and then there will be for the believer something called rewards in the eternal state. Jesus here calls it an inheritance that is awaiting you. Number four, and I'll bring the band up for this. We'll transition to a time of communion where we remember God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And I want you to receive Jesus and give him your sin. And if you're a Christian, we'd invite you in a moment to partake of communion. We're also going to sing and celebrate and worship God. And I'll say this too, we took the offering before the sermon because I want it to be out of gladness, not out of guilt. Here's how he says it in Acts 20, 35, giving is a blessing. He's quoting the Lord Jesus here. It is more blessed to what than what? In our world, does prevailing wisdom say it's more blessed to give than receive? No. In fact, there's false teaching that says that if you give, then God will bless you and he will cause you to prosper. No. You don't give to get a blessing, you give and giving is the blessing. If I, if I came to you right now and I was like, do you, do you wanna be blessed? You'd be like, yes, I do, then give. What, come on, no. God is the most generous. God is the most cheerful giver. God is the most blessed giver. And if I can get you to be a giver, you know what you're gonna give? Your money and your time, and your words, and your skills, and your presence. And I always like to say this, those who are givers are also forgivers. You could start to not make people pay you back, not punish them with vengeance. You can just let those accounts be settled in the sight of God and not seek to extract from someone what you feel they owe you for the harm that they have caused. If you will be a receiver, you will realize that God is a giver and that God is a forgiver. And then you can participate in his generosity of giving and forgiving. And you get to be a means by which the grace and love and power of God is shared with others. And I'll give you a little hint. It's a blessing. It's joyful. It's the right thing to do because God is right. Father, as we come to worship, I thank you for an opportunity to teach in the book of Proverbs. And Lord God, we, we ask for the grace to be receivers of salvation, righteousness, eternal life, forgiveness of sins. We ask for the grace to be givers, givers of time and money and energy and presence and love and encouragement and wisdom. 
and to be forgivers, people who are forgiven because Jesus paid our debt and forgiving others, hoping, trusting, praying that they will come to Jesus so that that debt could be paid for them as well. And God, I thank you for the faithful folks and the godly folks when it comes to finances, that Lord God, there is an investment account in the kingdom and there will be rewards for those who are faithful that are never ending. God, everything we're investing in ultimately comes to an end except the kingdom of God. And so we thank you for the opportunity to invest in what you're doing. And Holy Spirit, as we come to worship, just speak a word to each person. What is their takeaway? What is their application? What is their next step? And help them to do that in Jesus' name, amen.